Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 22, 1 through 14. If you'd like, please follow along in your pew Bible. Or if you brought your own along, please read along with me. That's Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would just be near to us, speak to us through it, um, just be at work as we come to understand Jesus better, that we might better learn what it means to follow after him and grow up into him. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, and be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Amen. So if you are just joining us this morning, we are um, in week two of our Lenten sermon series, where we are looking at some of what we call the last words of Jesus from the end of Matthew, some of the final kind of climactic, but also in some ways most mysterious parables and sermons and teachings that Jesus does in the final days before he is crucified. And as we think about this parable this morning, which is one of three that he kind of tells at the end of his life, I was reflecting that things are rarely kind of simple. You know what I mean? Things are rarely as simple as people make them sound. So like someone tells you how to fix your car and they're like, oh, you know, you just like pop off a few bolts and then swap this out and then you're done. And, you know, and I hear that and I'm like, oh yeah, I can, that's, that's a piece of cake. And, you know, then you're under your car and you're straining against these bolts, you know, that are rusted shut and, you know, and there's grease in your eyes and you can't tell your transmission fluid pan from Adam. And you're just thinking like, no, it is not as easy as you made it sound. In fact, oftentimes the kind of simplicity that people use when they describe those things kind of misleads you about the truth, right? I I knew a girl back in college who would paint and was this phenomenal painter, and she would describe how you painted something, and it was just kind of like, you know, you just slop some green and blue on there and kind of mix some stuff together, and then you've got this picture, and having tried, you know, taken a stab at painting, like, slopping green and blue onto the canvas is absolutely not how you actually (laughs) end up with that picture, Um, Things are rarely as simple as we can make them sound, and I think God and his kingdom are perhaps least simple of all. I was thinking about that because 
So this parable we have us this morning is really kind of the third of these three parables that Jesus tells in the final week of his life. And all three of them touch on similar themes, themes of the coming kingdom and grace and judgment, and all of them center on this feeling that is clearly God, or this, this character that's clearly God, a father in one of the parables, the owner of a vineyard in the second, and a king in the one we're looking at today. And all of these stories are kind of complicated, which is to say that we read them and we're not quite sure what to do with them. And that's, I think, because there are really two ways that you can oversimplify the kingdom of God. Two ways that you can oversimplify what it means to be a part of his people. And in both of those cases, what you end up doing is kind of misleading people. You you end up losing the thing that you're trying to make it all about. So on the one hand... You can try to make the kingdom into a graceless kingdom, one which is all about obedience and judgment and kind of pulling those bootstraps all the way from here to glory. But ironically, the kingdom isn't that simple, and when you try to simplify that that way, you actually end up losing the, the actual law that you're trying to defend, right? Because you can't have a kingdom only based in law, when none of us perfectly loves God or neighbor in thought, word, and deed, when none of us actually lives up to it, and so that kind of legalistic kingdom ends up having to take away the true weight of the law. Um, at the same time, you can also oversimplify in the other direction, right? You can make this kingdom of kind of abstracted grace, where there are no gates or boundaries, and God is just kind of an indulgent grandfather, right, who wants to give everyone a warm hug and pat them on the back, And again, when you do that, you usually end up having to cheapen grace because you can't have a biblical idea of sin, of rebellion against God and destruction and abuse of the world. You can't have that idea of sin and have God just be chill about it. So you end up having to cheapen the grace that you're trying to exalt. The kingdom of God is never as simple as those kinds of pictures that we paint of it. It involves... Um, a law and a call to obedience that is so lofty that we can in some ways never keep it, but that in other ways we are still called to pursue it. And it involves a grace so deep that it pays for every failure that we could ever commit, no matter how bad, but a grace that nonetheless somehow compels obedience and calls us to something. And I think that it's that tension and that complexity of the kingdom that Jesus is trying to bring out in this story this morning, which is part of why perhaps this story is one of the parables that can seem confusing to us, all right? So Jesus, in this parable, is trying to teach us about what it means to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of his people, but his answer is a little more complicated than the stories that we like to tell. So here's what I want us to do, all right? Instead of trying to sort that out up front, let's just walk through the story, walk through the parable Jesus tells, and ask what he's trying to say, all right? So the story that Jesus tells is really kind of divided into three parts, I think. There's three different ideas that he goes through, one after the other. And the first idea, the place where Jesus starts, is with insiders being cast out. That somehow in the kingdom, insiders are cast out. So start in verse 2 with me. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So Jesus is talking about God's kingdom, and he says it is like a king who prepares a wedding banquet. His son's getting married. He's throwing a party, all right? And we have some idea of that. If you think about weddings today and wedding receptions, 
we kind of get what this is about. I mean, in our world, it's the bride's parents and not the groom's parents that pay for stuff, and how you feel about that cultural change is probably going to be based on how many sons and daughters you have. But, but we spend outrageous amounts of money on weddings, right, and on wedding receptions. And we do it because we want to celebrate them. And wedding banquets in the ancient world were like that, but even more so. Now, we don't, they didn't have like the DJ and stuff that we might spend money on, but in exchange, you had absolutely unbelievable amounts of food. You would feast for days to celebrate a wedding in Jesus' world. Literally days, right? Like that's kind of unimaginable in our world, but you would wake up and you would start feasting and you would feast all day and you would fall into bed and you would sleep and you would wake up the next morning and you would start again. We get a hint of that in this story in verse 4. All right? Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding. And we'll get to that in, in a minute in the story. But look, he says oxen, plural, and fattened cattle, plural, have been butchered for the wedding. And you know how much meat is on a cow, right? And he's saying that there's like four or eight or 20 of these things that have been slaughtered for the wedding feast. The feast um, is rich. And that already, actually, before we even get to the point, that should start to tell us something about the kingdom. I don't want to miss it as we get to what Jesus does with that. But God isn't throwing a funeral in the kingdom, right? I feel like sometimes we talk about it as if he is. Um, The king isn't inviting people to eat vegetables and exercise. He's inviting people to this incredible feast, right? To tables laden with meat and fruit and drink and dessert and music and dancing and roaring laughter and celebration. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus uses as a picture for God's kingdom. I think sometimes we can make God's kingdom sound like broccoli or self-flagellation and punishment or something miserable. And while we don't have time to dig into that today because that's another sermon, that is something that we should kind of always keep our eyes, our ears attuned to. Because if that's how we feel, we probably have missed something profound about God's kingdom. It is a kingdom that's meant to have kind of humanity and, and joy in the present and deep and true and final eternal joy at the end. But that said, the king is throwing this party and the party's the kingdom, and he sends out his servants to those who have been invited, right? In verse 3, he sends his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Notice the servants aren't even going out with invitations, right? It's not like these people are having good excuses here in a minute, right? They've already gotten the invitations. This is where they go out and announce, like, it's here, come on, the party you've been invited to, come celebrate. But they refuse, right? Now, this is a parable, and so the things don't just stand for themselves, and Jesus is talking about more than a party in this story. But even within the story, right, even just with what they're doing within the story, think about what they're saying to the king. First, they're saying that they don't think much of the party. If you look at verse 5, after they refuse the king, he sends these servants a second time, and in verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. So they're saying by their actions, nice party, I guess, but really I'd rather go to work, right? I'd rather go pull some weeds. So they're insulting the feast that the king is throwing. And they're insulting the king, right? I mean, at best, these people are in surrounding kingdoms and they should still respect the king, but probably, given the way these stories usually work for Jesus, these are the king's subjects, right? These are the people that he rules over and they're refusing to come to the banquet. That's a snub to the king. It's like... 
it's, it, this is not like some old high school friend sends you an email inviting you to their kid's wedding, right? This is like the White House invites you to a party at the White House, right? And it shows that they don't think much of the sun. Um, you guys know this, or at least if you're female, you know this, and you tell me when you're married to me that it's the case that you need to go to weddings of people that you're close to or that you're in relationship with because it's, you know, it's kind of offensive. It's insulting them if you don't. Okay? So the king invites them, and they refuse... And he sends his servants a second time, stressing what a great feast it is. And notice that he doesn't have to do this, right? They've already insulted and snubbed the king, but he sends his servants a second time and says, No, come. But some of them ignore the servants. And the rest, well, as verse 6 says it, the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Right? Now this, this is where we have to step back from the story a little bit, because this is where Jesus is kind of trying to say something, right? Um... I mean, because it's kind of an overreaction within the story, even if I don't want to go to a wedding. I don't, like, kill the Mayo man for bringing the invitation. But, um, but Jesus is speaking in this parable to the religious leaders of Jerusalem. All three of these parables, he's kind of speaking to the kind of religious elites of his world, right? And one of the ways that Jesus repeatedly calls out those religious leaders um, is by talking about their, their parentage, their genealogy. Um, So the religious leaders in Jesus' world put a lot of confidence in their heritage and their breeding and their great-grandpappies built these synagogues and their grandpappies and pappies led them and now they're doing the same. They're, you know, from the good families and they're the good Christian folks. And what Jesus reminds them consistently in the Bible over and over, he's going to do it again in our text next week, is that those parents are the ones that murdered the prophets, right? That Israel was not historically a country that should be proud, necessarily, of that heritage. It was the powerful and religious folks in its history that led it astray, over and over. And God's correction almost always came from the outside and from the fringes, from prophets wandering in the desert and people without families or reputations that God used to correct Israel, and that these people's grandpappies mistreated and killed those prophets, all right? And that's not Jesus just insulting their breeding or something. Jesus brings this up repeatedly to make two points to these religious leaders. The first is that their outward religiousness is not as great as they think it is. Their outward religiousness is not as great as they think. Because it was outwardly religious people, he points out, who over and over murdered the prophets. So you shouldn't put a lot of trust in that. And second, Jesus is using what happened to the prophets as a model for what's about to happen to him. These religious people found Jesus intolerable, found his message of welcome and repentance and grace and inward righteousness and the equality of all before God intolerable. It threatened their sense of self-righteousness. It threatened their privilege, and it's ultimately why they killed him. So these people who Jesus is using to represent the outwardly religious, the insiders, end up killing the servants. And then Jesus ends this part of the story with the kind of thing that people in our world don't always wrestle with Jesus saying, but he says, the king was enraged and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now again, that's going beyond the immediate story because it's not a warning that if you don't RSVP to that wedding, you're going to start World War III. But Jesus is making clear that the result of the religious leaders and what they're doing is ultimately going to be judgment. They assume that they're on the inside, that they're the ones that the king likes and owes, and Jesus says instead that the king will return and the city's going to burn. 
So what do we do with that first part of the story? Part of this story is something I think that we already talked about last week. The idea that Jesus destroys worldly privilege. That's one of the kind of like gongs that he bangs over and over in his last week. That it's easy for us to confuse true Christianity with outward groups we belong to. We think just by outwardly being part of some group of people that we are inwardly Christian. And this story warns us against that. And there's also, I think, a warning against confusing outward righteousness and religion with true faith in this story. Outward religion can easily become a way that we serve ourselves. It's about making us feel better and look better than the people around us. But when God's servants come and remind us that actually we aren't as righteous or good as we are pretending, and what we want to do is kill them. But more than either of those things, what I think this story reminds us of, this first part of the story, is that you can't have true membership in the kingdom without being connected to the king. You can't have true membership in the kingdom without being connected to the king. That's what Jesus is saying ultimately when he tells this part of the story. These religious leaders have been so focused on the external stuff of the kingdom, to the field and the work and that, that when the king invites them to a party for his son, they would rather kill the servants than come celebrate with him. Christians sometimes talk about having a relationship with God, and that language can be confusing to people, right? Because obviously on one level, I don't have a relationship with God the way I have a relationship with, like, one of you, right? We don't, like, sit around and have conversations and, you know, I mean, play sports together and watch television together, right? It can be strange to think about it that way, and it can be strange to think about spiritually, right? Because we're not talking about, like, a dude. We're talking about the eternal, all-knowing Lord of the universe, But this is what that idea of having a relationship with God actually means, right? Not that he's like your homeboy or your boyfriend or the kind of like trite ways that we can make that sound, but that we stand in relationship to God as our king, that he's a king that we can speak to and hear from and love and be loved by, a king who invites us into the celebration of his kingdom, a king who we can live in relationship to as our king. And that's what we are called to do as Christians. The danger for us, like for these religious people Jesus challenges, is that we can lose sight of that king. In our religion, we can lose sight of him. We can identify with the kingdom and try to keep the kind of outward rules of the kingdom, but without knowing and living in relationship with its ruler, we've missed the point. The kingdom ceases to be about him, about celebrating him, about celebrating his son, and it becomes about something much less. So that's the first part of the story. And that's sobering. But there's good news that almost immediately follows, right? Not maybe good news for the self-righteous religious leaders, but good news for people like us. Because Jesus warns that insiders are cast out in the kingdom, but he also tells us that outsiders are welcomed in. Outsiders are welcomed in. So look at verses 8 and 9. Then the king said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Now that's crazy, right? All of the important citizens and dignitaries and stuff have refused to come to the wedding. And so what the king does is he sends his servants out in the streets to invite everybody, anyone that they meet. 
I mean, imagine what that's actually saying, right? There's this royal banquet, and the king, king tells the servants, you go out, walk out the door, and every person you see, you invite them, right? So they're like, well, you know, the businessman in the suit hurrying home, yeah, you know, you invite him. I mean, the, the kind of confused-looking tourist, yeah, you know, the, the person out shopping, yeah, you know, invite them. I mean, the homeless guy, right, taking swigs from the, the brown paper bag, yeah, invite him, you know? The, I mean, the guys, you know... <laughs> In gang colors, with guns. Like, yeah, everyone you meet, he says, bring them in. And in case, you meet, in case you miss the enormity of what he's saying, look at verse 10. He says, so the servants went out in the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's the key phrase here, the bad as well as the good. The king isn't trying to replace these first guests with other kind of upstanding religious types. He is inviting everyone including the dirty and the criminal and the wicked, into his party. Everyone is invited. And that part of the story should meet us on two levels. First, it should teach us how we view ourselves in the kingdom. If we are Christians, it is not because we were smart or good or valuable or likable enough. It is not because we were fitting replacements, right, for people that God had kicked out or something. If we are Christians... It is only because of the king's gracious invitation. The fact that we were good isn't the cause of us being invited in, right? I mean, the good people that got invited in weren't invited in because they were good. And the fact that we were bad doesn't prevent it. Or think about it like this, right? I mean, so there are people um, in the world who are, who are wealthy and, you know, and we feel like we should respect, right? People who, like, were really brilliant or worked really hard, you know, I mean... There's still a lot to be said there, but, but there are those people, right, in the world, um, and in the kingdom, none of us are those people, all right? Then there are other people in the world that we feel, like, kind of skeptical of, like, like lottery winners, right? You know, we feel like, okay, like, you're wealthy, but we don't feel like we really need to give you a lot of credit for that, right? You know, you, you wrote some random numbers on a piece of paper and paid $20 to get it printed out, and then, you know, and then you got $100 million, right? We don't, we don't feel like you deserve that. In fact, maybe you kind of don't deserve it, given that that's not probably the wisest way to use your money. But that, in Jesus' kingdom, is us. We are as deserving of Christ as someone who plays Powerball is as, as deserving of the $100 million. At best... Our citizenship in the kingdom is dumb luck, and it might even be outright injustice in a sense. So we need to make sure that we are viewing ourselves that way, not as the king's sort of like loyal subjects who get the party as a reward for their service, but as the people out on the street, the good and the bad, just the same, who are met and invited in. We are all in God's eyes, those people. And that truth should also remind us that we need to approach God's mission that way too, right? That the king sends his servants to give the invitation to everyone, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done. And so we, viewed from another angle, are those servants, right? And that's our mission, too. Just as we are those people invited in, we are the servants of Christ, called to love everyone, regardless of who they are, for Christ's sake, and invite them into his kingdom. All right. We're two-thirds of the way through this story, right? And in some ways, if we left the story there, we could still keep it as a kind of simple story, right? There's, there's judgment and city burning and some stuff that makes us uncomfortable. But, um, but we can get behind that story. At least some of us can. But Jesus gives it one more wrinkle to muddy the waters further, right? Because then he goes on to teach that everyone must be changed. 
that everyone must be changed. So now time jumps ahead, and the party's in full swing, and the king comes out to mingle with the guests. And again, this is a mark of grace, right? These are, these are not his, like, dignified subjects. These are literally, like, random strangers from the street, but the king still comes out to mingle with them. But, but the king notices something as he does. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. So something that you need to understand if this is going to make sense is that, um, so Jesus lives in this world where hospitality is this thing that is just not in our world, right? And part of hospitality in that world is that if you couldn't afford, like, you know, clothing for the wedding or something, the, the host would provide it or pay for, it, for you, right? So, so this, this is not a story where this guy can't afford a tux and, you know, and then the stuff that happens, happens, all right? This is a story where if he couldn't afford a tux, the king provided one for him, and he may very well have been able to afford a tux, but was just choosing to show up in his t-shirt instead, right? But anyway, so this guy is not wearing the wedding clothes, and the king confronts him in verse 12. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Now notice the king doesn't even get angry initially, right? He just figures, well, maybe there's a good explanation. Maybe there's been some mistake, right? He calls him friend. He asks him what happened, but the guy's speechless. There is no good explanation, no good reason. He just didn't feel like wearing the garments for the wedding. Like earlier, it's going to seem like what comes next is a bit of an overreaction because this story is about more than just a wedding party, right? But also like earlier, even before we get there, even within this story, this is a big deal, right? I mean, think about our world. You get an invitation to a party at the White House and you show up in like, you know, your, your dirty Metallica t-shirt and your cargo shorts, right? Um, and you're eating hors d'oeuvres and mingling and the president comes up and says, friend, you know, here, I can give you a suit. Let's get you changed. And you refuse, right? Even in our world, that's pretty insulting, isn't it? Um, and in Jesus's world, where you have this whole like honor and shame thing that we just don't have anything like in our world, it's way worse. Like to get closer to how b- insulting this would have been in Jesus's world, you'd probably also have to like spit on the president and, you know, give him the finger and insult his politics, right? You know, I mean, like, you, you, this is bad. And how do you think that's going to go for you, even in our world, right? So here's what Jesus says happens in the story. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, presumably so he doesn't try to get in again, and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is another picture of judgment, of being cast out of the kingdom. Indeed, it's worth noting that both kind of the picture of the armies coming and the city burning and the picture of the outer darkness are kind of like the standard biblical pictures for eternal judgment. So it's sobering, right? What's this part of the story about? Some people read this part of the parable and want to draw a connection between the wedding garments and the idea Isaiah uses of being clothed in Christ's righteousness, that you have to be willing to believe the gospel to be let in. And that's certainly true, that you have to be willing to believe the gospel But it's not what I think Jesus is getting at in this parable, because this part of the story is not actually about accepting grace, right? Because this guy accepted the grace already. He is not one of the people who refused the king's gracious invitation into the party, right? He accepted it, even though he had to know, given that the servants were just out inviting everybody, that he didn't deserve it. So he has been invited in and agreed to the invitation. But here's what I think is going on. So the king invites both the good and the bad into the wedding feast, He invites everyone, even though none of them deserve it. And that is grace. 
but he is still inviting them into his house as the king and into the party, right? He's inviting them to join into the celebration of his son. And so he expects them to join into that celebration if they come. So here's the thing about Christianity. This is how it actually works, and contrary to both of those two simple stories. On the one hand, what we stand on in Christianity, what we stand on is grace from first to last, right? It's grace that gets us in the door. We're the people out on the street who don't deserve to come into the party. It's grace that keeps us there. It's not like by, you know, by eating the shrimp cocktails and stuff that we suddenly like deserve to be at the party, right? It's grace that will preserve us to the end. If someone demands to know why we're there... The only answer we can give is because the king invited me and is extending his welcome. That is true, but that is a truth that people can abuse. Because the other side of that is that it is grace that we stand on, but it is not just grace that we're called to kind of like live into. We're called to be a part of the king's house, to eat at his table, and to celebrate his son. We stand on grace, and that is meant to call us to walk then in a certain way. Let me put it another way. The bad and the good are welcomed in, but that doesn't mean that the king doesn't care about badness, right? God invites us all into his kingdom despite our sin. He works to cover that sin, but he is not saying that sin is okay, right? That's that's the danger that we can get in this kind of story. Sin is destructive. Sin hurts people. Sin hurts us. God would not be a good God and be fine with sin. In fact, the creator God himself suffered death and condemnation in order to deal with our sin so that we could be welcomed in. Scripture constantly tells us that we find forgiveness for our sins, but it never tells us that we should treat them as good or as no big deal. Or as N.T. Wright, the brilliant New Testament scholar, puts it as he reflects on this story. He says, When the blind and the lame came to Jesus, he didn't say, You're all right as you are. He healed them. They wouldn't have been satisfied with anything less. When the prostitutes and extortioners came to Jesus, he didn't say, You're all right as you are. His love reached them where they were, but his love refused to let them stay as they were. Love wants the best for the beloved. And so their lives were also transformed, healed, changed. Which is to say that what we see in this story is that we have to have grace. Without it, we will be destroyed. And if we miss it, then we are outside the kingdom. But grace is never an excuse to keep on sinning, to treat sin like it's no big deal. Here's what it comes down to, I think. There are two wrong ways to understand the kingdom. One is to think that those in the kingdom somehow deserve God's love. And we don't. Every one of us is a sinner whose only hope is the claim that God loves us in spite of our sin. And we're called to extend that love and grace to other people. We're mistaken if we miss that reality. But the other mistake is to take God's love and think that it means that we aren't called to change. We are called to change. Every one of us is. We are called to obedience to self-sacrifice, to seek peace, and to pursue love. And if we use God's grace to avoid that, then it's like telling people to come to the wedding, but don't dress up for it. And according to Jesus, that is equally a mistake. Which is Jesus' point then? He sums up this parable and the two before it like this in verse 14. He says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now there is a whole bunch 
theological discussion behind that verse that we're not going to get into as we close this morning. But here's what it means for sure, besides any of the other stuff we could say. For sure, it means that on the one hand, God's call is indiscriminate, right? Many are called. His call comes to the religious and the irreligious, the outwardly good and the outwardly bad. It comes to all of us. But it is meant to be a call to something, to live as part of God's chosen people, to come into the party and be a part of the king's household and feast at his table. And so on the one hand, we cannot limit the call, right? Thinking that it's only for some chosen few. We can't limit the call only to people that are like us, only to people that have reached some certain standard or are at some certain level in their life. But we also cannot think that the call equals being the chosen. We're called in the gospel to something. We're called to pursue God and to find healing and to new life. And so being a part of the kingdom means hearing that call and then making it our own and living as God's chosen people. That is what we are called to, to never lose sight of the indiscriminate nature of God's call for others and for ourselves, but also never to cheapen the fact that that is a calling in to the party. Would you pray with me? God and Father, I pray that you would just be at work in us. Um, Teach us both the humility to recognize the graciousness of your call and to extend that gracious call to those around us and to recognize the seriousness of that call and to lean into it, to take up our crosses and follow after you. As we do and as we stumble in that walk, may your grace always be the thing that we stand on. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me?